Today we enter into the final chapter of the book of Hosea. Uh, We'll be in Hosea chapter 14 and we'll be looking at verses uh, 1 to 8 today. So turn with me to Hosea chapter 14. We'll look at verses 1 to 8. This is that fun, fun word, the penultimate, which doesn't mean the last, but the one right before the last, uh, the penultimate uh, study or sermon in the book of Hosea. And as you get there, you know, what does repentance take? And when we're talking about repentance, right, we're talking about turning from something to something. We're talking about turning. That's that's what we get with this idea of repentance. We're talking about turning. And in the context of the Bible, in the context of what Hosea has been preaching and declaring to the northern kingdom of Israel, we're talking about turning from sin and to God, returning to God, to turn back to God. When we repent, we are saying we are done with our sin and we follow after God. And this is true for us as Christians the very first time that we we did that when we were saved. And this is true every day of our lives as Christians. Our Christian life ought be one of repentance because we are not done with sin until Christ calls us home. All right, this is the experience that we have throughout our Christian life. Uh, Paul, when he writes to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 9 to 10, Second uh, Corinthians 7, 9 to 10, uh, Paul gives us this idea of repentance here, right? He says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. All right, so if you know something of the book of 1 Corinthians, if you've read through it, if you've studied through it, you know that Paul has a lot of very harsh topics to discuss with the Corinthian church. They have a lot of error in their midst and sin in their midst. And so Paul, reflecting here in his second letter, says, you know, I, w- I rejoiced when I heard you were grieved, which sounds like a, uh, right, a little bit of a sadist or something going on in there. No, but that's, that's not what Paul's manner is, right? He's saying, I was rejoice that you were grieved because I know it led to repentance. You turn from your sin and you return to God. And so as we think about what Paul says there, and as we come to our text today, right, when we talk about repentance, we're not just talking about sorrow or grief, right? We're not just talking about eyes that cry, but we're talking about eyes that cry with action, right? Grief combined with action. That's what Paul defines godly grief as, right? Grief with action. That's repentance. And as we come to our last chapter in Hosea, right, the the people of Israel still need further instruction. And today, as we come to our passage, I want to see, I want us to see the truth that King David wrote many years before Hosea, and that is that God will not despise a broken and contrite heart. God will not despise a broken and contrite heart. So let's look at our passage today out of the book of Hosea, chapter 14, starting in verse 1. The scripture says, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. 
Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to Him, Take away all iniquity. Accept what is good. And we will pay with bowls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. And we will say no more, Our God, to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. I will hear their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I do to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I'm like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. And this is God's word. All right, so, so all throughout, uh, God has been calling the people of the northern kingdom of Israel to consider their ways. Uh, they had from the very outset of the kingdom. So the moment they were created as the northern kingdom of Israel, they had from the very beginning uh, fallen off, right? had abandoned God's covenant, had started worshiping false gods. And for all this, for the years of this false worship, uh, this belief in false gods, this sacrifice to false gods, for all this, we really have the chilling pronouncements that Hosea gives beginning in the first chapter where God says through the prophet's family life, There's a day of Jezreel coming, a day of bloodshed. There's a day of no mercy coming because I'm not going to have mercy on you no more. There's a day coming when you are not my people because you're not my people. I'm not your God. Right. That's that's a harsh thing to hear at the very outset. But their sin demands it. And there are also these words of consolation throughout. And we see that here in this last chapter, these words of consolation, these words of comfort, these words of instructing the people to uh, repentance. There is coming a day when God will bring his people back to himself, when the people will call out in faithfulness to God. And so what does Hosea, what does God want us to leave with out of the book of Hosea? Because there's lots of oracles of judgment. There's lots of doom and destruction. But God doesn't end there. What is the message he wants the people to take away? He wants them to take away the message of repent. And so let's look at that with verse 1 to begin. Uh, a real return. A real return in verse 1. O Israel, return to the Lord your God. Right? This is the message of the book of Hosea. Return. Turn back. Repent. There are warnings. There are pronouncements of judgment. But there is always this heartbeat of repent, repent, repent. It's what Hosea called the people to in the beginning of chapter 6. Right? If you look at chapter 6, the first few verses, you see this call, return to the Lord, for he will heal you. It's what we see in chapter 12, verse 6, return, repent. Turn back from your destructive ways and turn to the Lord. And in this, we need to wrestle with the character of God. What does God make of humanity and our sin? Well, sin before God is abhorrent. It's evil. It's an affront to his holiness. Hear what the psalmist 
writes in Psalm 5, verses 4 to 6. Psalm 5, 4 to 6. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And we have to wrestle with this, right? The proof of what is happening uh, in the land of Israel is this, exactly this, right? The people are evildoers. They sin. They lie. They're bloodthirsty. They're deceitful. And God says, evil can't dwell with me. Why is God calling the Assyrians to come and destroy his people? Why has God brought drought and famine? Why does God say, look at verse 16 of Hosea 13. Why does God say this? This is, right, this is really harsh language here, right? Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. That's hard stuff. Why is God saying this? Because their sin demands him to say it. The sin of the people of Israel is repugnant to a holy God. And I mean, look at that, right? We, we see that in verse 1 here of our passage. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. And that word stumbled is often indicative of divine judgment, right? Because of your sin, because of your iniquity, because of your transgression, whatever word we want to use there, because of these things, you have stumbled into divine judgment. What is transpiring in the northern kingdom is not because God is capricious or absent-minded. He didn't just forget about them and be like, oh, I wonder what's going on there. No, what is happening is precisely what must happen because of the guilt and shame of sin. The wages of sin are death. And the people of Israel have been working for their wages. But there's more to the reality of the nature of God. I want us to continue in our passage and continue to see this. So, so secondly, we have here a right confession. Verses 2 to 3, a right confession. Right. And again, this is Hosea speaking here. He says, take with you words. Right. The answer is return to the Lord. Verse one. But how do we return to the Lord? Well, Hosea says here, take with you words. In other words, pray this. Let this be the confession of your mouth. Take words and say to God. Right. It's this kind of prayer of repentance here. And first he begins with a plea of forgiveness. Right. Uh, very start out there. Take away all iniquity. Take away all iniquity. Take away our sin. Take away our transgressions. And before they can do anything else, they have to pray to God and ask Him for the forgiveness of their sins. They have done wrong, and they need to admit it to be forgiven. And in some ways, that's not a simple place for us to start, even though it should be. right? But why do I say that? Because... How often do we use our words, and whether that's before other people or before God himself, how often do we use our words to justify our sinful behavior? 
How often do we say things like, well, what I did wasn't really that bad. It's certainly not as bad as those people over there, what they're doing. I mean, it's not, my sin's not really sin. It's kind of like a little bit less than that. It's a gray area. Here's how I'm better than others. And indeed, it's easy to think for the northern kingdom of Israel, how the people there would say, well, what do we, what do we have to confess? What do we need to ask forgiveness for? We're very religious. We, we worship everywhere. We've done nothing wrong. We offer the required sacrifices. Hey, the priest says you sin this way, offers, offer so much, and hey, we do it. And, and what's the big deal? We've made penance. God should be pleased with us. We're very religious. David understood something important in relation to his own uh, sin. In Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, when David sinned, he understood he had to confess his sin to God. He had to ask for forgiveness. Listen to this, Psalm 32 For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. It says, when I was silent, when I didn't confess my sins, when I didn't say, take away all my iniquity, I had no strength. I was weak. I wasted away. The weight of God's hand was upon him. He refused to acknowledge his sin. And you know what? For that God made him groan. And by the way, that is a mercy of God. And you may not always feel that way. But when you, when you are in unrepentant sin and God makes you groan, that is his mercy. Amen. Psalm 32, verse 5, David continues and says, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Right? David got to the point where he's, he says, I, I acknowledge my sin. I confess my sin. I ask for forgiveness. And you know what God did for David when he confessed his sin? He forgave him his sin. Right? He says, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. We continue in our passage in Hosea. So Hosea says, take away all iniquity. Start there. Confess your sin. Accept what is good. Or the King James Version and the New American Standard render it, receive us graciously. And it's this idea here, plead with God to accept the earnestness of the prayers that are being offered. They plead the character of God. Accept what is good. Accept what is gracious. Let us accept that grace. Right? They plead the character of God. Fundamental to the identity of who we know God to be is found in Exodus 34. Exodus 34, and I want us to look at verses 5 through 7. Exodus 34, 5 through 7. And if you want to turn there in your Bibles, because it's, a, it's important to see these words, because this is the character of God. Exodus 34, starting in verse 5. Moses asked God to show him his glory. Moses can't see the glory of God because if man sees the glory of God, he dies. Such is the, the weakness of this frame, stained with sin. But God proclaimed his name before 
Moses. Exodus 34, starting in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is who our God is. This is the nature of God. This is his character. This is his name. Right? We begin there. He says, the Lord, the Lord. And that's the name that God gave to Moses when Moses asked him out of the burning bush. Right? Moses asked him and said, when I go to these people and I say, God sent me, who, what, will, what name will I use? What name will I give them so that they know that I'm speaking true? And God says, tell them, I am who I am sent you, right? God is self-existing, eternally so. He existed before time was created. And I know that's hard for us to understand because we live in time, right? We're always moving forward in time. But the Lord is the Lord. I am who I am. Here he proclaims his name and he says, a God merciful, meaning He gives, he withholds from people what they justly deserve. He withholds what is justly deserved. He withholds judgment for those for whom it is due. A God merciful and gracious. Gracious meaning grace, uh, favor unearned, unmerited favor. He gives good gifts to those who do not deserve it. He's slow to anger. He's patient. Long-suffering. The people of Israel certainly knew that. They, They had lived in disobedience for generations. God has been slow to anger towards them. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in hesed, steadfast love, covenantal love, abounding in faithfulness. He keeps his promises. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. This is who God is. So, and let's ask the question, why does God forgive sin? Why does he make provision for his people to have the forgiveness of their sins? Why did Jesus Christ come and die in the place of sinners, shedding his blood that the sins of his people may be covered? Why did God make him who knew no sin to be made sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God? And there are some in our world, some who even go by the name of Christian, who will say that God forgives because God has to forgive. Or that God forgives sin because he needs us dearly. That God sent his son Jesus to make a way so that we could, in essence, cheer him up. No, beloved. No, brothers and sisters in Christ. God does not forgive sin because he is compelled to by his creatures. He does not love because he is forced to love. He is needy of nothing. 
He needs nothing. He doesn't need you or me. We do not add to the person of God and we do not give him anything that he needs. Do you understand that? He does not need our praise. He is not benefited by us. So why does God forgive? Why does he show love? Why is he gracious and merciful? Because it's who he is. That's his character. The character of God is this. Right? Famously, uh, the Apostle John in 1 John says, God is love. It's who he is. He is gracious and merciful. That's his character. That's his nature. The hope for the people of Israel is that God is God. And our hope is God is God. And the last part, though, of what God proclaimed before Moses is important, too. He will by no means clear the guilty. Sin does matter. Sin has consequences. Again, there are some in our, in our culture, in our day and age, that would say, well, sin doesn't really matter. God forgives you. He'll forgive everybody. It doesn't really matter if you sin or not. It doesn't really matter if you follow after him or not. You just have this tenuous belief in God, and that's fine. That gets you in. That's good enough. No, sin has consequences. Sin unrepented and unforgiven kills. And the words that the people were to take, right? When so Hosea instructs them and says, take with you words and return to the Lord, say to him. What, what Hosea is not saying here is pray this prayer like a magic incantation. And then that's all you need to do. No, what, what Hosea is saying, what repentance means is that they are to take more than mere words. They were to present the fruit of their lips. Uh, some manuscripts have in this verse, right, in, in uh, verse 2 of chapter 14, the ESV reads, we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips or the fruit of our lips. And it seems to indicate here that there, uh, there's a reference here to offering sacrifices. However, that's probably not the best way to, to translate this verse. It's probably not the best understanding of this verse. Because I don't, while Hosea doesn't rule out sacrifices, we don't see him say, don't sacrifice again. We do know that he's already mentioned the thing, the very thing that uh, David mentions in Psalm 51. And the very thing that God uh, mentions through the prophet Samuel when King Saul disobeys. And King Saul says, well, look, at I got all these animals here to sacrifice. And what does God say? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Right. So so I don't think Hosea would rule out sacrifices per se, but I also don't think that he would be here commending them to offer sacrificial bulls when that's what they've been doing all along and they've been doing it wrong. So it probably uh, is better to understand this here, uh, something like the uh, New American Standard that says that we may present the fruit of our lips or even the King James Version in a little bit of a uh, a metaphorical way, which this is a poem, so we can understand this metaphorically, right? It says, uh, so we will render the calves of our lips. And to understand this, that, that what Hosea is calling them to give is the sacrifice of words of a repentant heart, right? So more than just words, right words, and more than just words, a repentant heart, all right? A changed heart. 
And we see the, the reality of this in verse 3. Because what does, what does the prayer, their prayer of repentance, what should it include here? Right? Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. And we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. Because right? all along, what had been some of the problems in the northern kingdom of Israel? They're relying on their foreign alliances with Assyria to save them, to give them safety and comfort. They're relying on their own military might, their, their palaces and their strongholds to save them. They're relying upon false gods that they create, that they carve, that they cast to save them. So why do I say here that they have a change of heart, that it's more than just mere words because they have a change in the direction. They have a change in what they believe in. They turn from something to something and they turn away from military alliances, military strength, false gods. And what do they turn to? The one true and living God. Right? See how they repented here. And at the end of it, we get this idea further, right? Uh, in you, the orphan finds mercy. And that seems a strange way uh, for Hosea to end this kind of prayer of repentance, right? Why are we talking about orphans? Why, why would we say in you the orphan finds mercy? This is something that is throughout the Bible, right? That God defends the fatherless and the widow, right? He cares about them. The people had been acting as though the other things would save them. And here Hosea tells them to repent, not just with words, but with a changed heart and to realize that God is the one who saves them. God is the one in whom they can find mercy. And so why this issue of orphan? Well, earlier in the book of Moses, we could go back to chapter two, verse two, and I'm not going to actually turn there, but you could if you wanted to look at that. Hosea chapter two, verse two, we see this reference to mother Israel. And as we look through this idea of mother Israel throughout developed throughout the book of Hosea, what it seems to be in reference to is kind of institutional Israel. So what we mean by that is uh, the political structures the religious structures of the society, uh, the cultural structures. This is Mother Israel, is, is the institutions that make up the society. And all along, what God has been saying in the book of Hosea is that institutional Israel is dead. It's going to be dead. Uh, we, we saw in the last chapter, how it's likely that the king has already been carted off to Assyria. They don't have a king anymore. There's no political structure. Politics are dead in the land of Israel. We know that the altars are going to be torn down and destroyed, and the people are going to go into a land, and they're not going to have the ability to worship as they once did. The religious structures have been demolished. And we could say the same about the cultural structures of the land, right? Uh, Everything is destroyed and removed and all that's left is the people and even they've been carted off in exile. And so in this way, they are orphaned and they can have the hope of orphans, which is in you, the orphan finds mercy. Now that they were orphaned, the people could hope in the mercy of God for them because God shows compassion to the fatherless. But we need to ask the question. Will God accept a repentant people? Will he accept these words, this change of heart? Well, let's think of that next as we look at verses 4 to 7 and 
in a growing love. A growing love in verses 4 through 7. Now we see a switch. Uh, What was once Hosea talking is now God talking, right? Because God says to them, I will. I will heal their apostasy. I will heal their backsliding. I will heal their waywardness. They had rejected and renounced the ways of God uh, ultimately, right? Not, not maybe in word, but certainly in deed. That's, that was the issue in the land of Israel, right? They had rejected God. But he will correct that. He will heal that. He will love them freely. I will love them freely, he says, for my anger has turned from them. Right? What's this context of love? Well, we could go back to Hosea 11.1. 1. Hosea 11.1. 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Think of how God had loved the people of Israel in the days of old. And God now says, I will love them. I will rescue and redeem them. I will bring them into a good land. I will bless them. <coughs> right? His love is going to be unbounded. And his anger has turned away. We could say that God has repented of his anger. Right? His anger has turned from them. And what will be the proof of this? What is the proof of God doing this? Is this not so in the person of Jesus Christ? 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10. 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10. And this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Right? Just stop there. What does it mean to be made manifest among us? It showed up. It appeared. It was proved. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So will God accept words of repentance? Will he accept a change in heart? Did he not make a way for the forgiveness of sins through the sacrifice of his son? Or listen here to these beautiful words from the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. Zephaniah 3, 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Beloved, Jesus Christ is mighty to save. He is gentle and lowly in heart. All those who come to him, he will in no wise cast out. Again and again and again, the testimony of the scripture is this. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Or as Paul expresses in Romans 8, 31 through 34, Romans 8, 31 through 34. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Or how the author of Hebrews expresses it is it. Uh, and in Hebrews 7, 23 through 25, Hebrews 7, 23 through 25, 
The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, what's the consequence of this? Listen to what the author says. Listen to what God's word says here. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Friend, if you come to God with true words, words of confession of your sins, if you come to God with a changed heart, he will forgive you your sins. He will give you life, new life. He will change you forever. What is there left for you to do when Christ said on his cross, it is finished? And the answer is, there's nothing left for you to do. God is calling his people to himself. And so plead with God this day. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to change you. He is faithful. He will surely do it. Because it's he alone who can heal you, who can save you. Listen to the words of God to his people. Uh, Verse 5. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will be dew. and, And we don't get this as much here, but... In the deserts of Israel, if there is no dew, there's no plants and animals. The desert wilderness depends on the dew. And here's the contrasting reality to that, right? In Hosea 6.4, for instance, God says, What shall I do with you, Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. God's used this idea of dude to describe the people's faithlessness, their unfaithfulness. And now he's using it to describe his way towards them. Gentle, loving, refreshing, healing. (coughs) More than that, it says he shall blossom like the lily. Uh, Or that word there is some kind of flower. We don't really know for sure, but lily or crocus. Beauty. Growth, they will grow deep roots, right? He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. We can think of Psalm, uh, Psalm 1, verses 1 through 4. Psalm 1, 1 through 4. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. What is he like? He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. (coughs) They will seek the Lord. They won't need anyone to teach them the law of the Lord because it'll be written on their heart, right? That's the promise of the new covenant, the covenant established by the blood of Christ Jesus. And there'll be a deep-rooted tree. More than that, verse 6 tells us his, his shoots shall spread out or his branches shall, shall spread out. There's going to be new growth. The people are going to thrive and increase. They'll be like the olive tree, which represents uh, wealth, well-being. They'll be like fragrant cedars, like the fragrant cedars of Lebanon. They'll be good-smelling. Contrast that with Hosea chapter 5, verses 12 through 13. Hosea 5, 12 through 13. 
But I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. Right there in Hosea 5, the image is that they're like a festering, gangrenous wound. Pussy and smelly. Smells of death. And God says, I will heal you and you'll be like fragrant trees. It's this image of Paul that uses in 2 Corinthians 2, 15 through 16. 2 Corinthians 2, 15 through 16. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance of death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? One commentator sums up the images here in this verse this way, that this future Israel... This one that has repented and turned back to God. They'll be stable, they'll be visible, and they'll be desirable. All the things they're not right now. Right now, in the time of Hosea, there's instability. Uh, the king's gone, the kingdom is crumbling. They're going to be carried off into exile. And who wants this desolate? Drought, famine, land. Verse 7, they shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. Here the Hebrew is difficult in no small part because we're dealing with poetic metaphor. And what Hosea seems to be communicating is this. It's not that they're going to return to God and dwell in his shade. It's that the nations are going to return to Israel and dwell in Israel's shade. Right? So in other words, that the people of Israel will be a shade to others. People will come to them. Verse 7 goes on and says, They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Right? There's going to be growth. There's going to be grain and wine. The very things that God has already promised will be taken away. God's going to return and bless them with it again. And their fame or their renown, their remembrance shall be like the wine of Lebanon. I'm guessing Lebanon has really good wine. Right? Apparently they do. But what's all this to say? That the people of Israel would find themselves the center of the blessings of God. Will God accept their repentance? Will he forgive them? Yes, absolutely. And it's not because they said a magic prayer. It's not because they offered enough sacrifices. It's not because they were worth it. No, God will love and heal them because it is in his nature to do so. And I would ask you to pause and to consider this question. Can God forgive and heal you? Can he forgive you of your sins and heal your soul of its defect? Given all that you are, given the amount of your sin, given the extent of your evil ways, given that when you want to do good, evil lies close at hand, given that God does not need you, given that what you deserve, what is just and fair, For you is your destruction. Given all this, is there hope? Not merely for others, but for you. Is there hope for the forgiveness of your sins? Again, Paul is instructive in this point, as he is in so many. 1 Timothy 1, 12-17. 1 Timothy 1, 12-17 
Paul asked this question of himself and listened to this answer he gives to his son in the faith, Timothy. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. What does Paul have to say after this? To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. As surely as Christ died, you can be forgiven of your sins. And as surely as Christ now lives, you can be reconciled to God. If God could save one such as Paul, he can save you. By the grace, right, his unearned favor, you can be forgiven, saved, changed, sanctified, glorified. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Consider the love of God. And let's consider, lastly, a fruitful answer in verse 8. A fruitful answer. <clears throat> God speaks to the people, O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? And God seems to be expressing this, this idea, this issue of what, what more can I say about idols? What more is there for Hosea to instruct the people on the foolishness and the evil of idols? There's nothing else left to say. God says, it is I who answer and look after you. I'm watching you. I'm looking after them. I'm watching to see how they will respond to the message of Hosea. What will they do with this word of his grace and mercy and love? They need only realize right, that he's like a luxuriant cypress, an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. They need only realize that their safety, their comfort, their blessings, their life, their breath, and everything is only found in the Lord God. So what more is there to say? Repent. Turn from your sins and turn to God. And understand that this word to the people of Israel still stands for us today. What Hosea has called the people to say, what God has said is still relevant to us today. God promises in James 4, verses 8 through 10, James 4, 8 through 10, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And so I may not know the state of your soul today, but God certainly does. God knows you. He knows the truth of who you are. He knows all of the guilt and the shame that you carry. 
And what your sin deserves is death. Justice for you is eternal punishment in hell. But Christ, but God in love sent his son, Jesus. But Christ accomplished for his people something marvelous. Listen to this description of it in Colossians 2, 13 through 14. Colossians 2, 13 through 14. And you who are dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, you who are dead in your sins, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You may be dead now, but you can be alive. If you turn to God and turn from your sin, if you confess your sins before God, you will find the forgiveness of your iniquity. And so today, trust in Christ Jesus, believe in him and his work, and follow after him all the rest of your days. And brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the message that we have been given. It's for us. We have great hope in the grace that is offered to us in Christ. So confess your sins. Find forgiveness. And live in light of that forgiveness. But more than that, the message we have been given is also for others. The scripture is clear. We have been given the message of reconciliation to go to a world that needs to be reconciled to God. Who do you know that needs to hear this message, the good news? Go and speak to them about it. Share it. It is good that we dwell on these things and consider them in our own hearts. But God has not called us to only consider for ourselves what he has done in Christ Jesus. He has called us to go and to preach. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the grace that you have shown us in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for the mercy that you had upon us to open our eyes to see and to believe. Father God, we thank you for creating in us faith where there was no faith. For giving us a a new heart where once there was a heart of stone, hardened and deadened by sin. Father God, we thank you for your manifold love towards us the love that you manifested to us in the person of Jesus Christ, your son. Father God, we pray. Oh God, we pray that we would comprehend this truth. That we would comprehend who you are. Oh Father God, that we would know what is the height and depth and breadth and width of your love towards us in Christ. Father, that you would change our affections from love of this world to love of you. We know that as you hold the king's heart in your hand and you turn it wherever you will, that the same is true of us. And Father, we pray that you would turn our hearts to you. Father, for as many as do not believe in you, we pray that you would have mercy upon them. 
Father, those who are close unto us, those who are our family members, those who are our friends, our acquaintances, our co-workers, God, we pray that they would hear this message and act upon it, that they would repent, that they would have godly grief, a grief that leads to action. Father God, we know unless you uh, work in the heart's of those who do not know you, they can never know you. They will be deadened and dumbed by their sin. But we pray to you, God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God, we pray to you, that you would have mercy upon these, that they would hear and believe. And Father, we pray that you would give us, your people, boldness to speak the message of reconciliation. Father God, that it would so change us. Your love would so instruct us that we cannot help but to speak of the love of Christ. But Father, we pray. We pray this that you may be glorified in us. We pray this because we know it is our good. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.